Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another Espresso Shots episode of T4C. If you're interested in breaking into clinical psychology and working to help people overcome, whether it's intense emotional or psychological difficulties, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has helped more than 150 people do just that over the last decade. But before I introduce you to Michael Dickinson, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that features career advice, insights, and inspiration you likely won't find anywhere else. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Michael Dickinson, a clinical psychologist who's worked in this field for the last decade. Michael's clients come to him for help with deep depression, anxiety, personality disorders, obsessions, intense fear, inexplicable jealousy, among many other personal challenges. Michael's training has included work in foster care, in corporate work, as well as in hospitals and now in private practice. Michael is passionate about helping people learn about the value that therapy can have in helping themselves untangle dysfunctional behaviors that are undermining their quality of life, as well as helping them to address their mental wellness challenges. But because his therapy sessions are private, he can't talk about his patients' personal journeys or their stories, but he can draw from them to write his own stories. And so for the last several years, that is exactly what he's done. He started writing fictional stories about people who needed help because of whether depression, anxiety, panic, and the thousand other variations of emotional difficulties. He's written dozens and dozens of them to date, and every week they're read by thousands. They're called Clinical Tales, and we will include a link to them in show notes. You can read them in Portuguese or in English. Michael, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated there in Lisbon and ready to go? I am indeed. Thank you very much for having me on the show. You are a very nice Zen kind of a guy, aren't you, Michael? I have my moments, but uh, <laughs> when it comes to work, I do try to keep focused. Oh, and, that's uh, wonderful. Well, you have a lovely energy about you. Oh, thank you. I suppose that's, you could say that it's not something I've actively tried to work towards, but those it comes with the, with the job description. I would have to imagine that outside of your personal challenges, 
mental health challenges among those, whether living in Portugal, elsewhere in Europe or Latin America or North America, where I am right now, near Washington, D.C., must be really off the charts. They are, more or less. And curiously enough, at present, I'm working with people from India to Eastern Europe to the United Kingdom to Central Europe, Portugal to Spain, North America and South America. And it sounds like they're all saying the same thing. Everybody's, it's just the only thing that varies is how much they're locked down, whether they're loosening up, tightening up, or somewhere in between. But what it always comes down to is whatever was around before the pandemic kicked in got 10 times or 100 times worse after the pandemic kicked in. Because if anybody has an issue, they kind of deal with it, they kind of ignore it in the daily life. You go to work, you have coffee, you go out with your friends and et cetera. Now you cut your friends out, you cut your job out, you cut going shopping out, you cut everything out and you're just at home with the problems, with yourself and with the, the small circle of people you might be living with. Therefore, what gets bad isn't something new. It's just something that was already there and there's nothing left for, there's no room left for distractions. If it's a dysfunctional family, it gets much more dysfunctional. If it's a depressed individual, chances are depression will get worse. Anxiety the same. It kind of goes down that road. And that's what I've been working with since March last year, which wasn't that long. Well, thank goodness we have professionals like you who are now accessible to us. You have been accessible to us before the pandemic, but now people are much more comfortable getting on a Zoom, getting on a Skype video or whatever that that digital platform is to have communication about wellness in a way that they probably weren't comfortable doing before the pandemic. That's very true. The therapists and mental health professionals have really come into the spotlight now. In Portugal, they included, there's a free government psychological support hotline. At any time of the day or night, you can call. If you're really going through a bad moment, you pick up the phone and train professionals on the other, on the other side free of charge. And that has been a, a lifesaver because when working in private practice, you can't just go out and say, hey, I'll treat everybody for free just because the world's going in a bad way right now. So I have bills to pay. So it's when people who are in a desperate situation contact me, well, I, I can't pay. I need help. Well, here's a hotline. Go for it. It has made a lot of difference to have somewhere to point people who are desperate and who can't pay any sort of service at all. So we're going to be getting more into what you do, Michael, in your practice and how you built your career and this creative writing that you do on Mm -hmm. the side in our main Time for Coffee interview. And our listeners should check out show notes to see if that has already dropped. But for right now, let's pivot into our 10 espresso shots. These are the questions to help our young listeners learn more about how to break into clinical therapy, clinical psychology, which is the work that you're doing. So first, espresso shot, Michael, what entry level jobs, and by that I would also include internships, are available Mm. to young people who want to break into this field? Um, There aren't that many. It's a bit of a tough field to get into. My experience was foster care, and I've come to realize that that is a very good entry level job for people wanting to to make a career in psychology, whether it's clinical, educational, or even another form of psychology, because it is, it's a, a workhorse sort of job. You go in and you take the full brunt of a very complicated situation. And these organizations often have a high rotation. Uh, people will stay for one year, two years, three tops, and then they'll often leave 
situations of burnout, exhaustion, etc. So for better or worse, there are often job openings in these places. And it's phenomenal practice because it's all empirical. It's all practical. Uh, even if you do try to grab a few books, most of it is all hands-on. And it's a very good jump from hitting the books to then just going straight into practical work. There's also some volunteer work that can be done, although it might be difficult to make a jump from volunteer to a paid job. And aside from that, I don't know that many, at least not in the reality here in Portugal. It's a bit of a difficult field to crack into. Okay. What about useful, hard and soft skills, Michael, that you look for, whether in the people that you hire, the people that you recruit, the people that you've worked with? What do you think are the most useful ones to have? As far as hard skills go, I would say the ability to work for a long time, with many cases without losing focus or persistence, because it might seem like an easy enough thing to do to just sit down and listen to somebody chat. But to really pay attention, to really understand what the person is saying and to do that to one person and then another and then another and then the next day another, and you do this full time, it takes a lot of stamina, mental stamina to do this. So that would be the first trait that I'd find, look for in terms of hard skills. And soft skills, the ability to see patterns, to intuitively understand where they are, to be listening to somebody talking about this and that and suddenly pick up the loose thread from one subject to another and see what's underlying everything that's being said. So those would be the two main skills. And then there's basic skill that can be said for anybody in psychology, which is to the ability to have empathy without contamination, to be able to feel, to empathize with what the person is saying, and then say, that's yours, not mine. Yeah, I would think that would be a challenge for me because I am somebody who has a lot of empathy and not taking it in so deeply that it stays with you. It's a balance. You learn to do it because you have, you really have to care about what the person is saying and you need to feel empathy and then you have to know where it stops. You have to then be able to hang up the call of that person saying that this week they were picking up a razor blade and then saying, okay, that's just another day in the office and I'm going to play with my kids. Mm, tough. It is, yes. But you, with practice, you can get there. Michael, what about someone's major? Is it a deciding factor to get into psychology? In other words, as an undergraduate, do you have to major in psychology or philosophy or fill in the blank if you want to get into this field? Is it a deal breaker if you haven't? You mean what would have to be studied before going into college? So studying, and I know in Europe, I should clarify, so this is in university, your major mm -hmm. versus graduate school. Does your major as an undergraduate in university have to be in a particular mm -hmm. subject? Not necessarily. There's a lot of room for movement while studying in psychology. For anybody wanting to do clinical psychology, recommend, it's not mandatory, but recommend all the subjects around psychological evaluation. So what would that be when you say psychological evaluation? So like projective tests, Rorschach tests, psychometrics, anything that will help students understand basic structure of psychopathologies and how to detect them. Okay. But they don't have to major in psychology. No. That's good to know. Now they have to have a graduate school degree a master's degree of some sort in order to practice? Is that is that the case? Yes. In order to be a 
clinical psychology? And if so, Michael, what are the degrees that they should explore getting that are most useful for them to have? Well, I'm not entirely sure how it's done in other countries, but here it's pretty straightforward to just do there's the main line for three years of just general psychology. And then at the end, it's clinical psychology. There's just no other way around it. It has to be clinical psychology to be able to follow this field. Terrific. Now, outside the classroom, what, in your opinion, are the life experiences that someone interested in this field should maybe try to curate Mm -hmm. or that they could be drawing upon that they're not even aware of? I'm just thinking right off the bat, someone's own family, the experiences Mm -hmm. that they've had in their own family would be valuable to them as as an aspiring therapist. But you're the therapist. Let me ask you. Yes and no. Family is something you can, it's a bit of a paradox. Having family issues can then be useful to to find reference points while you're learning and studying, but it's too close. When you're that early on in the career, it's too close and it gets messy, it gets confusing. It's actually healthier to learn about it later, although it's not exactly possible to, to separate the two, but it will be healthier to learn about your family problems once you've got a lot more baggage in your train than actually at the beginning. I would find would be a useful life skill would be a diverse cultural background. And this can be something as small as having grown up with various different groups of friends. It doesn't necessarily mean having traveled the world, just having the experience of being with very different people as you grow up. Uh, You have poor friends, you have rich friends, you have sporty friends, you have geeky friends, you have to just know what it's like to go from one side to the other and have completely different uh, reference schemes. If on one side uh, you could be mocked for liking this particular soundtrack, on the other side you'll be mocked for not knowing it. That sort of thing, to know how to position yourself towards entirely different people. And I love for books, for reading, to be interested in stories, because I really don't think that someone who doesn't enjoy stories would enjoy this field very much, because it's all about understanding each person's story. So if if you're the type of person who will get bored watching movies, who can't get into it, who doesn't like shows or, or books and just wants technical stuff all the time, maybe choose something else. Maybe research is for you. <laughs> something like Perhaps, that. Yes. 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 Research would be brilliant. Yes. I'm actually looking. I can see Michael. He can see me, even though this is an audio podcast. And behind him, he has his bookshelves. So yeah. I can tell you're somebody who loves to read. Michael, what is the best part for you of being a clinical psychologist? The best part is the unbelievable trust people put into me while talking. These are, without a doubt, the most honest conversations I've ever, I could have ever imagined myself having with anybody. Of course, it's not two ways. I'm not sharing my life with them. But it's something else to have an individual who has never talked about something ever with anybody, not even to the mirror, suddenly come and start putting into words for the first time and to then be able to find the right set of responses and reactions to allow the person to continue talking about it. And this can be something as simple as you have a big, big, chunky sort of muscular individual saying that they can't have sex without a stimulants. And this is the first time they'll have the courage to say it to somebody like, okay, well, that's cool. Well, why did that happen? And such and make it something casual. And then a few weeks down the line, like, oh, thank God I managed to talk to you about that. I don't need it. And can be something else like, oh, I was going through a bit of a rough phase and well, I did a bit of a bad thing to myself. Oh, well, what is that? Oh, I put a rope around my neck and I tried jumping. Um, okay. So these are shocking things. It is. But 
because they're shocking, they were never shared with anybody. And it's something else to be able to be the person to whom they say this. Just take it in my stride. Okay, it's another curious piece of their story. And then go beyond that to help people get unstuck from these things that they didn't even want to put into words. So the best part is that this unbelievable and unbelievable trust people put into me and the incredibly honest things they say. And honest doesn't necessarily mean nice, but it's very, very honest. It's also very powerful. It is, yes. And the power of it is also it's when you get to the point where you can make it a tool to help somebody and move ahead with life. And that's just great. Mm, doesn't get better than that. I really believe it. To know that you are able to lift people up at a time when they are feeling very low or their lives mm-hmm. are very confused and you're ha- able to help them find clarity. Mm-hmm. That is pretty much it, yes. So the flip side, Michael, mm-hmm. what is the part of your job as a clinical psychologist that sucks the most? I'm a bit biased there because I don't see much of a downside these days. It's something I enjoy so much doing. Um, the difficult part now is to try and fit everybody in to, into my schedule and to try and make all of this happen with as much normality as possible while being in full lockdown. So right now, yes, that's what sucks most, trying to work in the middle of a lockdown when the, the levels of fatigue and exhaustion are just off the chart. And a small child who doesn't want to sleep very much at night, that's the, that's the tough side of it. But this is just a phase. Once the lockdown is over and everything goes more or less back to the way it was, I can't really say something that's particularly bad about my job. I, I enjoy it. Love that. That is a wonderful mindset to have. I'm sure you've read Dr. Carol Dweck's work on, no, on the value of a growth mindset Mm. versus a fixed mindset. And Mm. well, if you give me your, if you give me your address, I'll uh, see if I can get you a copy and then you can let me know. (laughs) Will do. Thank you very much. So three final espresso shots. Mm-hmm. What is the best career advice you've ever mm-hmm. gotten, Michael? Abandon common sense. It will only hinder your understanding. The common sense we build as average individuals, if something is normal and something is not normal, that sort of thing, just throw it out the window. Utterly useless when trying to understand a new person. Only after you've spent a number of years understanding what common sense is to a therapist, then you can start using it. But only just briefly, because common sense refers to making assumptions. You assume something about someone. And that's the first thing that has to go out the window because it's also something that you'll base on your own experience. The other person's experience has nothing to do with yours. And so that should be the the number one piece of advice. Throw common sense out of the window. And then another basic one, just show up and get the work done. Because you have to start somewhere and you have to keep going. Don't just put your feet in the pool for a bit, see if you like the temperature and move away. If you want to do this, This is very, very hard. It sounds easy, but it's very hard. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time. So show up and do the work. So to the first bit of advice, you want to come into the work almost with a a clean slate in terms Mm -hmm. of your of your approach. Listening, listening with an open mind. Yes, I particularly like what uh, Wilfred Bean referred to as the therapist without memory or opinion almost to the extreme where you even forget what the person told you in the last session. It obviously doesn't happen, but it's, it's the premise. 
if a person has to re-explain a subject they've gone over before, this person again has to think about it. You understand? And so if the, the whole point of therapy is to get the person thinking. So yes, within reason, a clean slate, even to the point of a clean memory. Fascinating. So, Michael, I don't know if there are any movies or Netflix, Amazon, Hulu shows, or for that matter, books that you think accurately depict this profession. There is one, and it is, there are probably more, but this one particularly works very, very well. It's called In Treatment with Gabriel Byrne. And is this a book or is this a, oh, a this show? This is a TV show. It's a TV show. And it's called In Treatment. Intrigue with uh, the actor Gabriel Byrne, the guy who played the priest in The Exorcist. Oh, and, and is it non, is it fiction? It's fiction, yes, but it is the most accurate depiction of uh, psychotherapy that I've ever seen. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll include a link to it in our show notes. Mm -hmm. Final espresso shot. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about your profession? Mm. I would say to when... They realize just how much everyone has in common as far as insecurities, fears, desires, and basic humanity goes. Like I was saying, from India through Europe to the US to South America, very, very much the same, depending on, of course, change the language. But when I talk to somebody from one of these places, after the first session or two of getting a cultural background established, it really doesn't matter where they're from. The basic humanity in everyone is very similar. And the insecurities, the anxieties, the amount of people who have this idea that they have to hide their feelings from others and from themselves. This is an almost universal constant. Well, I want to give all of our listeners a virtual hug and let them know that help is out there if you want it. Fortunately, for those in Portugal, it's free. But for those in other countries, it may not be. Nevertheless, thanks to Zoom and all of these other digital platforms, you can reach out to someone who is a professional to get the support that you need. And we will include a link to Michael's practice in our show notes as well. Michael, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. This was wonderful. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202 202- 236-5712. That's 202-236-5712.